Sometimes there's just no right side of the bed to get out of. Other times, no matter where you step, you step into some love. Cause Jimmy bought a Christmas present for a cab driver this year to pay him back for all the times he dragged his drunk ass out of here. Jimmy is a good man, just living a bad life. Just doing his level best, gonna get things right this time. And Mary knew Count Basie Even had an affair with him for a hot New York minute She said, don't put me in no song, boy I said, Mary, it's too late You're already in it Oh, but that was in the dim and distant I was younger than then now And the days just passed faster Though I couldn't tell you how She said, like angels we start out Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right. It's me, and we are currently listening to David Morreale's song, From the Dirt, from his CD, From the Dirt. Let's listen to a little bit more. Fourth grade just wasn't in the plan, but he knows you don't need no education, not to be a good man. Jeremy wrote tunes on an old Gibson guitar And he played that thing till his fingertips bled And he took it down to Nashville where he thought it might belong But Nashville's a heartbreak town And down there they'll break your heart for a song He said like angels we start out naked We earn our feathers with our Well, I'm so pleased to introduce to you a gentleman who I've known for a long time. I rarely get to see him anymore. He started the original Snafu. And for those of you who don't know what Snafu stands for, it stands for Sunday Night All Folked Up. And he's instrumental and allowing me to get back into performing music again after many, many years of putting my guitar under the bed for probably 12 or 15 years. When he started that snafu, it's where I met Tommy One I'm Right and lots of other folks. And on the line with me right now is Mr. David Mori Ali. Welcome. Thank you, Todd. It's nice to talk to you. Well, you as well. Now, for those people who don't know what snafu was, tell us about it. Well, snafu originally started, I can't even remember what year now, uh, but it started because I had begun finally... Uh, doing a bunch of touring and I was always looking um, for great places to play. And I was, and as I would tour, I would meet all these great musicians and I would hear their songs and just be so impressed by their talent and their skills. And I just remember thinking there has to be a way for me to get these people to Frederick. I, I want to be able to contribute. I want to offer a gig to these great musicians and I want to bring these great musicians to Frederick uh, so that, you know, people can can also other people can enjoy their songs. And, and I just really wanted to create something where I could bring great musicians and put them in front of great audiences and just watch them sort of do what they do, you know. And so I, I toyed around with a lot of um, a lot of formats and stuff. And finally, it, it, you know, we did a couple and they were pretty successful. It was really nice to see. Um, with people, you know, touring artists coming into to Frederick, a town where that had not sort of been on anyone's map uh, in that scene and that folk music singer songwriter scene. And they were coming to Frederick and they were they were getting a chance to play and we were getting more and more people out. 
And then I sort of had this further notion that I wanted to give local singer-songwriters, I wanted to see if I could help the our, our local Frederick singer-songwriter folk music scene. And so that's when I hit on the notion of having an open mic portion, and I wanted to do invited performers. I had just seen so many great practices at these other folk venues where they were doing showcases and they were doing feature artists and and it was paid for out of tips and it was paid for out of venue pay. And it was, you know, it just seemed to me to be a great kind of a community building thing that I had seen on the road. And I kind of wanted to mix all the different parts of that, those things that I had seen on the road into one big thing that we could do here in Frederick on the, on a regular basis. And so that's really where it started. Well, for those people listening who don't know when you mentioned Frederick, it's Frederick, Maryland. And for many people who do understand that, they may not understand that Snafu that you brought originally to the Braddock Inn and then eventually, very quickly, actually, to the Frederick Coffee Company, mm-hmm. was what started the Frederick Coffee Company open mic series and also the Brewer's Alley Monday Night Songwriter Showcase that Rod mm. D.C. started um, over at his cafe first and then moving over to to Brewer's Alley. And so you were kind of the initiator of all that. And because of that, I got back into performing. So I have to thank you personally. Oh, well, that's, I mean, I, you know, I, you're welcome. I don't want to be inappropriate, but I mean, you just, you just brought such immense talent that, you know, I was just so grateful that you were willing to come out and support and, and bring your own, your own songs and your own abilities. And, you know, I mean, there was, you know, you were very instrumental in bringing people in the door and keeping them coming and, uh, and so I owe you a big thanks also. So thank you also. Well, you're most welcome, but I had so much fun doing it. And as I tell people <laughs> we, quite often is Snafu was like the happening event. I used to look forward to it. Many people did. And many of the folks who came out and did look forward to it weren't even musicians. They just wanted to hear the music. Yeah. Yeah. I was very grateful for that also. I mean, like I said, I, you know, the, the concentration for me in Snafu was building community. And I think the key to that was getting the right kinds of artists and, and, and hoping that they would attract the right kind of audiences. And when I say the right kind of musicians, I'm not even talking about necessarily their skill level or any of that. Although we got, you know, we always had highly skilled musicians and songwriters. I wanted people with the right kind of heart. Um, I wanted people with the right kind of ethics, you know, and, and we, we really got that. I think we created together, we created this thing that attracted the right kind of artists and the right kind of people who were just really open hearted and open minded. And, you know, and we, we managed to provide a stage and a room where those the the artist and the and the audience could come together and really share something meaningful. Well, many of the people who, or the musicians who started, and I say started, Tommy, one I'm right is a good example myself. The although we had both played in our previous lives, we'd kind of given it up for a while, but that snafu was instrumental in many people's later in life music career. Wow. Well, that's a real honor to to think about that, um, because I, in fact, I was always grateful for all of you coming out, um, and so it's really nice to think that um, that Snafu might have had a place in that. That's that's a real honor. Well, that being all said, it's wonderful, but I want to find out how did you get into music in the beginning? What what was your journey like? Wow. Um, well, the first, the first song that I remember hearing that really tweaked me was, um, and this may surprise uh, people who know my music, uh, was a song called Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy. And it was the one thing that I learned how to play on guitar was the guitar line from that song. Dwayne Eddy was kind of a 50s instrumental guitar player, very twangy, very reverby. And he had a song called Rebel Rouser. And when I was eight, the, the tone... And the the melody, just they were the meanest things I'd ever heard in my life. And I just really loved that song. And so from and then I discovered the Beatles when I was probably 10, fell in love with their music. Um, and from there, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, 
I just started obsessing about playing the guitar. And so I saved up my hay baling money one summer when I was 12 <laughs> or 13 years old. <laughs> and, um, and I bought a Montgomery Ward airline guitar, which I am looking at right now, hanging on my living room wall. As a matter You of still fact. have it. Well, I lost it for probably 20 years. And then I found it again for sale at the pawn shop in Frederick. And I, I, without question, I jumped on it. I bought it immediately. And so, yeah, so after 20 or 25 years, and I know it's the same guitar because there were very distinctive markings on it that I put on it myself uh, that are still there. And so I know it's exactly the same guitar. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I bought it. And so it's actually come back to me, which I'm really grateful for. My gosh, that's um, so cool. Isn't that great? Uh, and so, you know, I played guitar in a couple of bands when I was a, a kid and I took up singing um, because no one else in the band would do it. I wasn't very good, but uh, I was the only one in the band willing to, to sacrifice myself that way. And so I did. And then my family moved to England. And when I left home, I ran away from home at 15. I ran away from home a lot before that, but it finally stuck at 15. Uh, and the only way I had to make I didn't have a work permit. I didn't have a place to live. And so the only way I could think of to make money was to play guitar on the street and be a street musician, be a busker. And uh, so I did that. I, for 10 years, uh, from 15 to 25, I traveled around Europe, hitchhiking everywhere and playing guitar on the street. And, uh, and I, you know, I remember, I remember one of my girlfriends that I had back in the day said to me, you know, you're always talking about becoming rich and famous. If you're going to do that, aren't you going to have to write your own songs at some point? And that's when I started writing songs. And I think back to those early attempts and I just, you know, I just cringe. I mean, they were so awful. And I was so earnest. I wanted to I really wanted to write meaningful stuff. Um, and it took me a long time to find my voice as a songwriter. Uh, and I, and so then I moved back to America at 25 and I discovered touring here and I discovered you know, um, a, a lifestyle that I enjoyed. And so I stayed here and formed bands and wrote songs. And after, I think my, I think my first record, my first solo record came out in 2000. Uh, and I did a lot of solo touring behind that one. And then, um, I mean, I had some, I was blessed to play with some amazing musicians. Um, and I, and, and yet at the same time, I think the solo thing was sort of more where, I, I could make that happen more easily than, than being in a band. And so I toured a lot as a soloist. And then my second record came out in oh, 2005. Two, yeah. Thank you. 2005. <laughs> that's right. Um, it's sitting I, right in front of me. That's the only reason <laughs> I know. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah. So, and then I toured a lot behind that and that's kind of where it all started. Well, let me go back. You said something about the airline guitar that you saved your hay baling money. That's right. Now, did you live on a farm? We did. Uh, we were caretakers of a farm in Loudoun County, Virginia. And um, I knew that the guy, we lived on at the very end of a long gravel road and then a long dirt driveway. Uh, and a, a, one of the guys on my school bus route who lived about a mile from us, I knew he was a middle schooler. And so I knew he was like the coolest guy going. I really wanted to be like that guy. And I knew he had an old guitar. And I said, hey, you know, if, if you're interested, I've, I've saved up, I think, 80 bucks or so. You know, do you have a guitar that you'd be willing to sell? And he was like, yeah, I got a guitar and an amp. You can have them both. And so I gave him $80. I was making $5 an hour, which, you know, when I was 12 was big money. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, right. And uh, so I gave him my entire fortune, 80 bucks, and got this Montgomery Ward airline and an old amp. I don't remember what the amp was. Um, and I, and that was it. I took it home and I started trying to learn guitar. Now, were you self-taught? Did you buy books? Did you find someone who could show you? How did you go about it? I, I kind of, I bought books that showed you how to, um, I showed you, that showed you those chord diagrams, right. And, uh, and where, you know, where to put your fingers at which point in the song. And so I learned, uh, Beatles songs and I, you know, and I and sort of, that's how I did that. I remember learning help, um, by the Beatles and I learned it because they showed you, this is where your fingers go for a G chord. And this is where your fingers go for a B minor chord. B minors and Fs were always the killers for me. Um, and so, you know, and you change, 
you know, when you sing this word in the song, that's when the chord changes. And so that's how I learned. Now, do you remember the first song you learned? Oh, Rebel Rouser. Oh, that's right. You mentioned it. Yeah, Rebel Rouser. I urge everyone to, to look it up on iTunes or however you get your music. It's a, it is, it's a really neat song. In later years, when I was in my 30s, I was managing a restaurant and a venue in New York City. And I met the original writer of that song. Uh, his name was Sleepy Labeef. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? And, um, and I actually got to meet him. He came and played the, 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 the venue that I was managing called the Rodeo Bar. He played New Year's Eve at the Rodeo Bar. And I'm 6'3", and I weigh 230. I'm not a small guy. And when I shook Sleepy Labeef's hand, my hand disappeared into this huge <laughs> paw. Like, this guy is so big. And I, and he played Rebel Rouser for me that night with his band. It, it was it was an amazing experience to listen to that live and think back to the eight year old boy that just fell in love with that guitar tone. Now, you said your family moved to England. Mm-hmm. Was that like a job change type of a move? Yeah, my dad got a job over there and and moved us all over. And um, how did you get started with busking? I mean, what was did you just decide one day you wanted to do it and went down to the, you know, the local sidewalk and, or how did you go about doing that? Well, so, so I, I, when I left home at 15, it's not like I, I had any place to go. I literally walked out one night with a backpack and, and a guitar and, um, I hitchhiked to London. I, I was, I hitchhiked overnight to London, arrived in the morning and I think I had, eight pounds or 10 pounds on me, probably the equivalent of about $15. And um, I don't know if I consciously brought my guitar thinking about how I was going to make money or not, but I found myself in London outside of a youth hostel with, you know, a backpack and, and $15 and, and a guitar. And I remember just, you know, I was just a, I was kind of a go-getter kind of a kid. I didn't stop to think, you know, this might not be the right thing to do. <laughs> Excuse me. And so I walked into the youth hostel and I said, listen, I've got my passport. If I give you my passport as security, I'm going to go out and play music in the subway today and I can come in this afternoon and pay you for my room. And the guy was like, sure, man. He was actually from Chicago and he was like, sure, man, no problem. We can do that. And so that was my first day busking. I went out into the subway and um, I knew three songs. I knew House of the Rising Sun. I knew Help. And I can't remember the third song right now. And I just played those three songs over and over and over again for probably eight hours. Wow. And right. And um, and then I went back and, and I actually, you know, I was as a busker, I was probably making 15 or 20 bucks an hour. Uh, and I went back that night and I had my first night, you know, on my own. Um, and I just I figured I remember thinking, well, I guess I can make this work. And so that's all I did for 10 years was, you know, I eventually, I you know, long about 18 or 19, I finally found an apartment of my own and, um, you know, stopped sleeping in, on friends' couches and stopped sleeping in the park and, stopped, you know, sort of got myself a little more secure. But I stayed playing music full time. I, I was a busker and I would get gigs in pubs at night. And um, that's all I did. That's all I did was play music constantly and learn. I wanted to learn new songs. I learned, I learned new songs every time I met anyone who played a song that I liked that I'd never known before. I got them to teach it to me. Now, were you still playing the airline guitar at that point? No, I had, um, by then, what was I playing? Oh, wow. I was playing, so I have a, a, Lee guitar, L-Y-S. It's French for flower, right? So, or a type of flower. I had, I had traded, um, I had traded the Montgomery Ward airline for an acoustic guitar so that I could do that. And I was playing, and I actually have that Fleur de Lis. It needs repair. It's up in my, in my closet right now. So 35 or 40 years later, I still have that guitar. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, so I was playing a steel spring acoustic by that time big huge huge guitar that had lots of volume to it so now how did you carry extra strings with you because strings break i carried a lot of extra strings with me um as much as as many as i could afford um and i i remember one morning sitting in a cafe in tottenham court road in london 
And this was in, I was probably 15 or 16 at this time. And I hadn't really found how to be secure yet at this point. I was still sleeping in the park or sleeping on friends' couches. And I remember sitting in a cafe and thinking, I, I have a busted G-string on my guitar. And I've got 85 pence in my pocket. So I've got enough money for a string or enough money for a bagel and a cup of tea. So what do I do right now? And I, and I remember thinking, well, you need the G-string if you're ever going to eat after this breakfast. So I waited till the music store opened. I bought my G-string and I uh, strung the guitar up. I went back down into the subway and made enough money for breakfast. And then I got to eat that day. It was, um, it was an adventurous, it was an adventurous time. And I don't remember ever feeling despairing about it. I remember just being 15 and pretty sure I had the world by the tail and I never bothered sort of feeling lost or alone or, you know, I just had things to do. I had things to do. I had to learn how to write songs. I had to learn how to take care of myself. I had to learn how to live in the world. And so that's, that's kind of what I just, every day I woke up and I embarked on that adventure, you know? Now, did anyone chase you when you ran away? Uh, uh, no, no. As a matter of fact, I think my parents were kind of glad to get rid of me. Um, <laughs> I, I was a handful. I was not an easy kid to, to hang out with. Um, I'm probably not an easy adult to hang out with. Well, but no, I, no I, one, no one came after me. Now, did you have people who kind of adopted you along the way? You know, it's, I'm glad you asked that Todd, because I really did. I really did. I had a lot of help along the way. There was a woman named Jean who had been a friend of my, of my father's, who really took me under her wing and um, she helped me a lot when I would need it. And when things were particularly bad being homeless, she would, you know, I could call her, she would help out. Um, and, and then other people along the way and probably too many to count too many to name, but I, yeah, I did not do, I did not I I do any of this alone. I've had a, a lot of help in my life. Yeah, definitely. Now, were there ever days where you said, you know, this is just, I need to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Many of those days and, and probably more as I got older. Uh, and I, and, and there were a lot of days that were hard that way. Uh, but you know, when I was younger, I just didn't, I didn't bother listening to that. I was just kind of, I was pretty sure that I was, that I was living a pretty adventurous life. And, and that's, that's kind of what I was after at that point in time, you know? Um, and I, and I, you know, I've never been, never been the kind of person that can this is the first time in my life at the age of 54 where i feel like i can settle down i've i've, I've always been kind of a, a a traveler i've always been kind of a, a person who finds it very difficult to sit in one place now how did you choose where you were going to move on to to play next because you said you <laughs> went to london first right so where did you um, go to after that and how did you how did you decide you know i I don't know that I ever really made conscious decisions about where to go next. Um, you know, if you're talking about on a daily basis, I had, you know, in the London underground and on the sidewalk and stuff, I had probably 15 to 20, you know, they were called pitches back in those days. I had 15 or 20 pitches that I knew I could make money at. And so, you know, I'd go to one and if there was somebody already singing there, I'd go to the next. And if there was, you know, I would just keep moving that circuit until I found an empty spot and then I would play. But if you're talking about sort of a bigger sense, you know, it really was just, you know, I would look at a map and I would think Berlin seems like a neat place. And then I would hitchhike to Berlin and, you know, play there or, um, you know, say, and the same with anywhere, like, oh, you know, check it out. Well, and, and some of those trips, I didn't bother playing music. I would save my money and I would think, oh, you know, I've never been to Sicily. And then I would go to Sicily for a week. And uh, so there was a lot of that kind of thinking, a lot of, a lot of very aimless thinking going on. Well, it sounds like you could write a book. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. If, I don't know if it would be interesting enough for anyone to read. It would be interesting to me. I mean, you know, <laughs> Europe on a song or something like that. Right. I have thought about it. I will admit, I have thought about it in the past, and I've, I've, I've begun, I've begun doing some some writing along those lines just to see. Now, how often? Well, you, your dad. You're also a yep. teacher, although right at the moment with the whole you know COVID nineteen virus thing, there's not a whole lot of. Uh, 
active teaching school-wise, everything's closed down. But do you find time being a busy dad, a busy teacher, and just life in general that you can still write, or is it very difficult for you to find time? Yeah, it's um. Well, it, I, in fact, I am actually still actively teaching. My school has moved online. Um, but but to speak to the bigger question, um, no, I really don't. Uh, it's um, teaching. The day I became a teacher uh, was when I. It's so funny. I I was so naive about teaching. I remember thinking before I became a teacher, I remember thinking, you know, it's a literary kind of a thing to be an English teacher and being a teacher has got to be, you know, there's got to be, it it must be a handleable job. I'd have summers off to tour. And so I'll just retire as a teacher. I'll have a professional life and I'll keep writing songs and, you know, I'll just go stand in an air conditioned room and talk about books all day with eager students, you know? Um, (laughs) Right. And I, and so you know, the day I became a teacher was when I realized just how overwhelmingly difficult it is to be a good teacher. And so I've spent eight years now really trying hard to channel my creativity into being a good teacher for my students. And, and so between being a father and a husband and a homeowner now and, and, um, and a teacher, you know, I really haven't had any time to write songs, at least in a long time. I've tried writing, um, narratives more creative stuff in that way uh but yeah i haven't i haven't written a song in four or five years now now how did you go from being this kind of itinerant performer not really itinerant but someone who was who was doing the snafus and and touring for your cds and so forth to go from there to being a teacher or wanting to um, study to be a teacher what was the progression and what made you finally decide to, to go into education? Well, it's, it's funny you ask that question. Now I was looking through old diaries of mine, uh, three or four nights ago, and I came across an entry from 1997 that where I said, you know, I think I want to be an English teacher. And so even as far back as that, I think it was in my head that I wanted to one day be an educator. Um, and, and really it came about, you know, I mean, I was very happy as a, as a traveling musician for a long time. Um, but I had very unrealistic expectations of, of music. And I think if, uh, you know, I had expectations that, that me being a singer songwriter was going to inevitably lead to riches and fame and fortune. I was going to be Bob Dylan. I was going to be Richard Schindel. I was going to be somebody like that. And, you know, the fact is some people get to be Bob Dylan and some people don't. And I, and so I worked, I threw everything I had at that, at that for, for a really long time. And I got married and my wife, uh, you know, helped me remain a musician and she was fully supportive of it. And then one day I remember it was eight o'clock at night, coming up on eight o'clock at night. I had a gig to go to. And I remember I was shaving to get ready to go out and my wife was, you know, was getting ready for bed. And I remember thinking, I don't think this life is for me anymore. I'm in love with this amazing woman. And, you know, she works during the day and I work at night and it's just not, it's just not workable anymore. Like I want to be with her more than I want to go out and sing songs in bars anymore. And more than I want to go on the road and more than I want to play these venues I, and so I remember that night, I remember saying to her, you know, I think, I think I want to go back to college and become a teacher. And she said, well, okay, we can make that happen. And so that's, that's really where it all started. And, and I went back to school. I went to Towson University. I graduated um, in 2013 with a degree in, in middle school education. And, and that was it. Now, how old were you at that time when you went, went to school? I was 44 when I started at Towson University. Did you find it difficult since the majority of the students were probably in their late <laughs> teens, early 20s? Or I didn't find it difficult. I think it tickled <laughs> a lot of them. Um, you know, I, they would ask me, inevitably my age would come up, and I would always get one of two responses. It was really hilarious. Um, they would either say, oh, well, good for you, <laughs> as, right? As though, you know, or I would get, wow that's amazing. That is so inspiring. 
And, you know, they meant nicely. They meant it nicely. They didn't mean it to be patronizing or condescending, but it was, it was hilarious. And, you know, I mean, I've had very, I had a very different life than them. You know, I remember my lab partner in geology saying, you know, dude, where are you going for spring break? And I, I remember saying, well, I'm going up into my attic to clean it. What, <laughs> like, where are you going? You know? And, uh, and he said, Oh, I'm going to Cabo. And I was like, yep, that's the difference in our lives. Yeah. You know, um, I just, and it was great. It was fine. It was fun to be around kids that age. And it confirmed for me that I wanted to be a teacher. And, uh, and I just, I love being a student. I'm disappointed that, uh, in a month I'll graduate with my master's cause I don't know that I'll ever get a chance to be a student again. So I love being a student. I love being in a classroom. So you mean you're coming up on getting your master's right now? Yep. Yep. Oh, terrific. I Congratulations. I in a month. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's fun. It's been a, it's been a, a great journey and, and, uh, we'll see, we'll see. I may get a PhD one day. We'll see. Now, were you a good student when you were, before you left out, left in, on your own to you know, run away from home? <laughs> in my last year in school in America, I attended school 32 days out of the school year. So I was, I was the worst student anyone had ever seen. Um, I remember teachers coming to me and saying, you know, you, you have the skills to be a great student. I have no idea what's going on. Um, but, uh, but no, I was, I was a very, I was a very bad student. So was it when you decided you wanted to go to school to become a teacher, did you have to then take courses to get a, a high school degree or had you graduated from high school? Well, I, I did a I did a um, equivalent gra- graduation in uh, in England. I went to I did go oh, to okay. school for one year in England, and I graduated from there. And so they they accepted that. And now I did have to take um, remedial math courses in in at Towson University. It took me two semesters to do a one semester review course in math. Is that's how bad my math skills were at that point. Um, but I made I made it through. Now, did you find having to be a student again difficult or because you saw the the carrot at the end of the stick it 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 became easy for you i it, it, it not and neither of those things actually what what i found interesting was that i literally just loved being a student i loved the learning um, in every class i was always the kid that you know i was the kid i was in my 40s i was always the student that that was sitting in the front row I was always the guy listening to every word of the lecture. I was always on fire from the things I was learning. I mean, it, you know, I, I really, I just enjoyed it for its own sake. And I really feel like I was lucky that at the end of it, I got this qualification, this degree that allowed me to go and become a teacher. The fact that you enjoy learning yourself, has that helped you teach? It's, that's a great question. Um, it's helped and it's hurt. Uh, it's helped because I'm just really enthused about it. I love I, I love talking about ideas. I love you know bringing ideas and concepts to students. Uh, the double-edged sword, the flip side to that sword, is that if I have students that are less than curious, or if there's a subject about which even good students are often incurious. Um, it can be frustrating to, to, you know, to be talking about Shakespeare, for instance, a subject that I just that is just dear to my heart. And I find it difficult. Sometimes enthusiasm does not carry over automatically. Right. I remember being in ninth grade and hating Romeo and Juliet. And and now as an older person who is teaching Romeo and Juliet, which is a play that I love very much. You know, it's hard for me to remember, oh, yeah, right. In ninth grade, you hated this, too. <laughs> right. And so that that can sometimes, you know, I feel I feel very much like I love this so much. I wish I could I wish I could help you to love it. And and I expect them to love it. And they don't. And so, you know, it, there's there's only so much that you can do to get over the Shakespeare hump, you know, and um, you can make the lessons engaging and all those things. But sometimes just kids just don't, they don't want to do it. They don't care. It's, it's too much work. It's too obscure. It's too weird. Why is he talking like that? You know, 
so yeah so so that that idea of that enthusiasm can be a double-edged sword now do you have you had students and i'm assuming you probably have because just knowing you um it would be difficult i would think for everybody not to be enthusiastic and want to learn (laughs) from you have you had kids who just seemed like a tough nut to crack and then one day they start opening up and then by the end of the the year or whatever they're great students and it's just like this awakening i've seen that awakening happen yeah i i'm not sure how much came from me and how much comes from their own willingness to to be cracked open in that way um i know that i have a great love for my students uh and i know that um i know that the centerpiece of my entire teaching philosophy is that the that my students have to know that they can trust me um you know, uh, I know that unless there's that trust, you know, in a relationship between a teacher and a student, then learning is just, it's just horrendous and it's torture for everybody. Teaching and learning is torture for everybody if there's not that trust element. And so, you know, from day one, kids have to know that you're tough and that you're fair and that you you are, um, you're strict, but encouraging, you know, you've got to be able as a teacher, you've got to be able to make, you've got to be able to do a lot of very different things, very opposing things all at the same time. Right. So it, for some students, you've got to make a B feel like the worst thing in the world. And for other students, you've got to make a C feel like, like, you know, you just won a Grammy, you know? Um, and so, I mean, you, you don't ever want to make a B feel bad, but you do want to you do want to with some students be able to say you got to be that's great. We got to bring that up to an A because yeah. you know what that student's capable of. Right. And so, yeah, it's the awakenings are always great. And I've, I've been blessed to, to see them and to experience them. But I don't know how much of them come from the learning and how much of them come from knowing that they can trust me to to have their back to be on their side and i'm always on my students side always now, now has being a teacher and working with the students helped you as a dad and has being a dad helped you with your students i can what a great question yes absolutely it's both of those things that both of the both of these endeavors have informed the other in positive ways absolutely when you become a father, well, you, you'll know this too. Um, it's funny. I, I feel like I suddenly feel like every child in the world is my child. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, and I'm afraid for them all and I'm hopeful for them all. And I, and so when you're standing in it now, you know, and I'm, I've fallen down on this stuff, you know, I've done, I've made mistakes in the classroom. Um, I don't mean to paint myself as this, you know, whatever, but, but in general, I'm very, very aware that this is someone's child I'm speaking to. And even more importantly, this is, this is a child's heart that I'm talking to. I don't want to crush. I, I want to do the opposite of crushing for this person, right? My job as a teacher, my job as a teacher is not even to teach them what I'm trying to teach them, the content or the subject. My job as a teacher, my overarching job as a teacher is to teach my students to love to learn. Yeah, That's what I really want to do. Um, I want them, even if they hate Shakespeare now, I, my fondest hope is that one day when they're 50 and I'm long gone from their lives, that one day they'll find a, they'll find themselves watching Romeo and Juliet on TV and they'll think, you know, Morialli really loved this. I'm going to be open to watching this. And then they'll fall in love with it, too. Now, did your performing career help you with your teaching? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't know how people who don't have a performing background are able to stand in front of their first group of 30 kids in a classroom and conduct themselves at all. I, I construct my lesson plans the same way I used to construct set lists. I, I, I think of the, the jokes that I want to tell before class. I, I access the same part of my psyche, for want of a better word, the same parts of myself 
to teach in front of a group of kids as I used to access when I was singing songs in front of a group of people. Exactly the same skill set. Now, do you get nervous going into, say, the, the, the next class, the next year? It's the first day. Oh, God, yeah. The first day, yeah. The first day is always difficult. The first time you're in front of a, gr- of a particular group of students is always hard. Um, and I hate to say this. I know that a lot of teachers um, don't, especially administrators, don't like to hear this. But what I've learned is that is, is there's a lot of truth in that notion of, you know, don't smile before Thanksgiving, don't smile before Christmas. And, you know, that doesn't mean be mean to your students, but it does mean, you know, you have to, you have to take charge of that space. You have to communicate to. I think I lost you there. Well, hopefully we'll get David back on the phone. I'm not sure where he went. Are you still there, David? It says we're still connected, although I'm not hearing anything. Well, we're going to play a little bit of his music while we try to bring him back. And hopefully, we'll hear Mr. David Marioli talk more about his education career and uh, go back into his uh, musical history. So let's see if we can pick him up here. There you are. Hey, I know that one wasn't me. I'm not sure what that one was because you were, I I pulled up the phone and the counter was still there and everything, but there was no sound, so. Okay, well, we're back. We Um, are. Yeah, I just think, I think students need to know that they can trust their teacher. And one way that, that you establish that trust is by letting them know that you're in control of the room. So does that mean that you try not to be their friend for the first month or so? Yes. Is that difficult it, it, for you? It's very difficult. Because you're a very amiable guy. I mean, you've, you've always been. You're right up front. Hey, great to meet you. Good to see you. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a natural stance for me to take. It's very difficult. Um, but it's, it's gotten easier as I go. And it's also gotten easier because I realize that it's the students that need it. They, they need to feel safe in a classroom. And they feel safe the, the same way, like I said before, the same way any of us do when we're around someone who is a leader. We need to know that our leader is in charge of things, is in control of situations, is in control of events. And so uh, so they, they need it. And the fact that they need it makes it easier for me to do. Well, let's go back musically now. Yeah. In uh, around the year 2000, 1999, year 2000, you, you, you released your CD, Book of David. Right. And then in 2005, you brought out From the Dirt, which is my favorite of the two. Thank you. I I had to look Book of David up online because I don't know what happened to my copy of Book of David, but Mm -hmm. the Book of David poster, or yes, because the image of that CD was on the poster that was at Borders. They used to have like a a pedestal where all the CDs of the local artists and when I had started writing after going to see Livingston Taylor at the, uh, the Weinberg and realizing, gosh, he's having a lot of fun. I used to have a lot of fun. Maybe I should start doing this again. And I started purchasing CDs. And I had gone by and I realized that there are local people who do this. And I was standing there one day looking to see whose CD I could maybe take home. And here's this poster talking about Book of David and Snafu, basically. And that's how I ended up going. The... I mean, that was very good of you, not good of you, but uh, astute of you to put out a poster to advertise that. Not many people would have. They would have just told a couple of friends and said, hey, so how did you go about doing that? What was your, had you learned that somewhere? What, to sell the CD or to, to attract people to Snafu? Well, to do the whole poster and everything so that you attracted, it. one, it showed the CD and the CDs for sale, and two, to get people to, just the fact that you're promoting it that way because no one else there, they just had their CDs, but you had a right. poster. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think 
I remember saying to Zach Maybe, the the guy that the producer that produced that first record, I remember saying to him, Look, I've heard a lot of local artists' CDs, and you can always tell a difference in the now this was old days. It's very different now. But back then you could hear a difference. You would put the CD in and you could hear that it wasn't well produced. You could hear that it wasn't the equal of anything else in terms of production um on the shelves and so i remember saying to zach like if we work together on this and we did that was a communal effort a a cooperative effort between zach and i that cd and we agreed that we were going to work our tails off to make it the you know equivalent to anything in terms of quality anything else that was that they were going to pick up that they could pick up you know a led zeppelin cd you know this is just production wise i'm not pretending that my songs are the equal of led zeppelins but the the production values were very important and so i think the poster was kind of an offshoot of that you know i thought well it's not enough to why would anybody buy the book of david if it's just sitting on a shelf there has to be some kind of thing backing it up and so I'm, you know, so I remember making those posters and uh, and I thought, well, you know, when I put the poster up, I remember thinking, well, I'm also doing Snafu right now. So I really need to promote not just the CD, but help the CD promote Snafu also. And Snafu can promote the CD. And so I really wanted back then. I mean, back then, I just wanted to make a living as a musician. And so anything that I could do to help sell CDs or get gigs or both was what I was going to be after. And so, you know, so that's, that was the, that was the idea behind all that. Well, it worked for me. Yeah. I mean, gosh, and you, you coming and your support uh, of Snafu, you know, was key in building the audience for Snafu also. So yeah, clearly that poster paid for itself, didn't it? It, it, it surely did. <laughs> now your uh, record company, we all have our own record companies, whether we actually have a brick and mortar building or not, but uh, is right. Mud Luscious Records. Yep. How did yep. you come up with that name? That is a line from an E.E. E. Cummings poem about the coming of spring. And I loved the notion, I still love the notion that um, I think it's behind, I think it's the notion behind From the Dirt also that. Uh, that huge growth comes from these moments of muddiness, these moments of, you know, of difficulty and challenge and the idea of, of growth from those moments and great growth, not just growth, but like huge uh, wellsprings of creativity and growth and personal advancement and loveliness and love and all those things coming from this sort of dirty, muddy, difficult place. I've always loved that that picture and and i've always loved the. i mean i've always loved spring i mean this is right now i'm looking out at my trees and the leaves are coming out just spring has always been my favorite uh season for that reason just this huge outpouring of creativity and love and stuff now uh book of david you recorded with zach in mm-hmm. zach's tracks in frederick yep but from the dirt you recorded somewhere else yeah, I recorded it down in Asheville, uh, and my producer uh, back then, Chris Rosser. His name just went. Thank you, Chris Rosser. Um, oh God, such you know, I've only released two records, and both records have been produced by these amazingly talented musician producers uh, with just huge ears and ability. Um, I mean, Zach was was amazing to work with. Uh, I really saw both of us in this great creative fever, working really hard to make something great, to make a statement. Um, I had a lot of amazing musicians sit in on that CD, Scott Ambush and just my buddy Butch and just so many, you know, I was honored by that. Uh, And the same in 2005 with From the Dirt. Chris is a fantastic producer, great musician, insane songwriter. And he just knew so many great musicians that would that would come in and work on the CD with us. And so um, the styles of music are very different, but the intent and the process and the results uh, in in those kinds of creative ways were, were very similar. I'm very proud of both CDs. Well, they're both excellent. They're very different. Yep. That's not always a bad thing. Right. right. Now, but from yeah. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. The, uh, what I was going to say is, From the Dirt, 
because you had done Snafu. You'd been um, successful in the Frederick area with your music mm-hmm. um, on the heels of Book of David. And looking through the credits, you brought a lot of the people who you had met through Snafu to Asheville to perform on the record with you. Yes. Karen Rule is one. Mm-hmm. She sang uh, backup vocals um, on, what, two or three cuts, I think. Yep. Yep. If, if there is a finer female voice anywhere around, I don't know that I've ever heard it. I, she is an amazing singer. And, and uh, you know, it was a lot for her. to. She took vacation time from her job. She came down and, and laid those vocal tracks down and uh, was just massively talented and wonderful to work with. Yeah, I was really honored that she was willing to do that. And I had forgotten, I mean, Jeremy Baldwin, his, his name is right there on, on the credits, but I had <laughs> forgotten that in the song From the Dirt, you actually mentioned him in the song. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, you know, we, we've heard Jeremy play a bunch of times. You know, that kid's just, he's a wonder kind on the guitar and a great songwriter in his own right. Um, and he really impressed me. I was really, I was really amazed at his courage and his bravery and his hunger for, for, for doing what he did. I mean, he, he moved to, you know, the songwriting capital of the world, which also means it's, you know, the toughest uh, city in the world to be a songwriter in. And, you know, and he did that. He, he moved his whole life down there to, to, to make something happen with his music. And I just remember just being really blown away by that. And, um, and feeling, you know, I wrote, I wrote dozens. I mean, I probably wrote 30 or 40 verses to that song. I, and and whittled it down and found it really easy to whittle down. I didn't realize what I was doing until it was all over. But I whittled down all my favorite verses into the verses that made it into the song. And that's when I, I looked at those verses and realized that every single one of those verses were was were about someone that I knew. They were about a real person. I'd made up all these stories, all these heartbreaking stories, all these things. And the song, the verses that made the cut were about real people. Now, how... And I, I think that says something. Now, you used to introduce one of your songs, and I apologize for not remembering the song, but I remember how you used to introduce it, which was, mm. I really don't want to call it rap, because it's not rap, but it's that speaking musical rap um, in a right. very acoustic sense that you were so good at. I, I used to sit there and listen and watch you and think, first of all, how does he remember each one of the words in the right succession, and how does he not fumble them because you never did <laughs> and then when you because i had forgotten and i hadn't i have so many cds from because i'm like you i'm a student of other people and i mm-hmm. had to go searching for the cd it was luckily the first place i looked down in the basement and i apologize that you made it to the basement david but that's <laughs> not where, at all that, not that's at where all. we were <laughs> but when i i thought you know if i'm going to introduce david i should probably do the title track and i had totally forgotten that you do that kind of musical rap. Um, and what made you decide to do that rather than singing all those lyrics or all those words? Well, uh, there's a mundane reason. And then there's a, what, uh, you know, I like to think maybe a more profound reason. The mundane reason is that I remember re- hearing the Cheryl Crow song, the, her single from Tuesday night music club. All I want to do, right. That song. Yep, yep. And I loved how she spoke the verses. And so the mundane reason is, I wanted to write my own song in that manner. That's the sort of the mundane. Uh, and probably the more profound reason is that I kind of, when I whittled those those verses down to those verses that were about real people, it really seemed to me to fit the intent of the song, which is, you know, which is really to honor the people whose efforts are, are I admire and whose hearts and whose, whose lives I admired so much. Um, it, there's something that just felt more honest about speaking them than singing them. Uh, and, and, I, and conversely to that, I decided to sing the chorus because that seemed to be the right way to sort of honor them at the end of each verse. So I would speak the verse to, to sort of try to communicate this is something that, that is, this is a life that I think is really important. 
And then I would sing the verse as a way of sort of exulting in that life, as a way of sort of saying, yeah, man, this life was really awesome. Let's sing about it. Does that make sense? It does. Now, did you find, or do you find, being in the recording studio, since it, is, it really is so different than performing live, do you find mm-hmm. it to be nerve-wracking, exhilarating? You hate it, you love it, any of those, or all of those? <laughs> yeah, uh, it is nerve-wracking. It's, it is difficult. It's a different skill set. I do love it. It's a different kind of creativity. Um, I find... I find playing the guitar in the studio really freeing um, because you, you just, you have all day long, you have as many hours as you can afford to, to manipulate sound and to experiment and to play the parts over and over again. And you've got the chance to, to say, you know, that's good, but I think I can do it better and and over do things over and over and over which is fun and all that creativity the chance to be creative is is wonderful i find singing in the studio to be a lot more difficult uh because i'm because i can hear i i I can hear the weaknesses in my voice uh so much more in the studio than i can when i'm live now do you sing as you're playing the guitar or do you track the guitar and then sing in the sound of, in the, you know, the vocal booth? In, in, in the, there were songs on both records that I did uh, while I sang. And there were songs on both records that I did without singing to do the initial tracks. So, so yes to, to, to both of those questions. Which is easier. Mm. Um, I don't know that either is easier than the other. It's, it's a different skill set. I mean, I would do like from the dirt, in other words, like we can look at that one like that. I did not sing uh, while I was tracking the guitar because the, that rhythm needed to be super exact and I needed to hear the drums in order to, to do that. I couldn't get lost in the performance. When you're singing and playing guitar in the studio, it, it takes on a bigger, it takes on a much more performing aspect, right? And so I would get excited and I would rush and I would do all these things. So that particular song, I needed to play the guitar on its own. And so I'd have the lyrics in front of me on the music stand and I would sing the song in my head. But mostly what I was just so I could keep track of where I was in the song. But mostly I was thinking, um, you know, am I hitting the strings right to get the tone that I need in this part of the song? Am I am I being tidy on the guitar? Am I do I have strings ringing that shouldn't be ringing? Do I you know, where do I you know, so it's much more a craft oriented thing on some songs on other songs. I'm trying to think of others that, on that record that I that I did do where I sang and played at the same time. I can't really think of any at this point. Um, uh, you know what? Missing Baltimore was one that I played and sang at the same time because that one I had. I had played so many times live at that point that I felt I could do that one as a much more, 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 more of a performance than, than a craft recording. Now, do you see yourself writing more at some point in your life and recording another CD or is that in the past tense? No, I, I, I do. I think, um, I still like to think I always wanted three CDs before I was done. And, I like to the the CD that I would like to do now. I've always had this notion of doing um, a CD called Naked and Not. And what I mean by that is the naked would be an acoustic would be 10 acoustic songs, just me and the voice live in the studio. No overdubs, no just just like a performance. And then the not would be me with a full-on band doing much more rock-oriented songs, louder, more guitar. I'd get to play some leads and that kind of thing. So, you know, I do have daydreams of, of that happening. Well, you have, all done. you have two boys, right? Mm-hmm. Do they show any interest in music at all at this stage? Uh, the four-year-old, not so much, but the eight-year-old has shown, has shown some interest, um, and, uh, you know, for a long time, I was so heartbroken about about my musical career. I wasn't able to look at it honestly. Uh, and I really wanted to discourage that in him. Uh, and I'm grateful that I managed to to let it be what it was for him, um, because if he shows promise and he decides that's what he wants to do, I, I'll back him up on it. You know, um, he deserves the right to to try and perhaps fail 
uh, the same as any of us do, and he has, deserves the right to try and perhaps succeed the same as some do. So, uh, you know, I I'm grateful that um, that I've been that I've been able to achieve some distance in the last eight years from my career. Well, I must say that it, you have had a wonderful. Now, it may not have been the most lucrative um, from a money sense, but you've had from the outside looking into your musical life, you've had a wonderful musical experience. I mean, how many people other than Rod DC can say that they busked all around Europe? (laughs) Yeah, it's, and I think that's part of um, what I was trying to say a moment ago about achieving some distance from, from my career uh, in, in time and geography, right. Um, That I'm, I'm finally able to kind of look back on my life and, and realize, yeah, you know, I've really, by by some grace of something i managed to live a pretty adventurous existence both personally and musically um and and i am you know i'm i essentially made a living as a musician for 35 years and i think that that's you know i'm i'm finally able to say you know what that's actually no small thing you you did achieve something you know i didn't become jimmy page and i wasn't supposed to be well um, i for one appreciate the fact that you had your musical career because if you hadn't, it probably would have taken me longer or maybe I wouldn't even have gotten back into music. So you've had a wonderful career from my standpoint and I thank you personally for helping me with get mine back on track, although it's not a, really a career, it's a sideline, but it's been, uh, it's been fun. I wish I could see and hear you more often. I think it's uh, once every five years lately, it seems like. <laughs> but that's the way life works sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, and I am hopeful that there will be more gigs. Um, I, um, you know, things have been busy with, with school and with both as a teacher and a student and as a father. But I, I really don't think I'm done yet. I think there's more coming. And, and I would like to think that I would get out more than once every five years. Absolutely. Well, you let me know when you're ready, because you're always welcome to come to the stage wherever I'm having a show. Um, you know, I love the songwriter showcases. So, and I learned that from you. So thank you very much. And I thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I had a lot of fun this past hour. Oh, me too. And thank you so much for inviting me. I haven't gotten, I haven't had a chance to talk songwriting in a really long time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, well, good. Well, listen, congratulations on the masters coming up. Congratulations on the education career and for the family and the, everybody hopefully stays healthy through this virus. And, uh, thanks again, David, for joining me. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. I hope. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was David Morreale and uh, talking about his musical career and his education career. I want to thank you so much for spending a little bit of time listening to this podcast. We're going to finish the show off with another song from the CD, From the Dirt. This is the song he referenced about five minutes ago when he said he sang and played guitar on his CD, From the Dirt. This is Missing Baltimore. Baltimore. 
The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission of the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. wispymopmusic.podbean.com and Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. wispymopmusicpodbean.com Or you can check it out on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and we'll finish the song. And catch you next time. as good as it ought to But to come home first I had to leave And it feels as though I've never been away before I'm always missing Baltimore If I read these road signs right, I might make it home tonight. By the map, I haven't been so far, but this distance is no measure. Distance